Hello, I'm Christopher. This is my wife, Lindsay. These are our kids, Dominic, Adeline, and Cassian. And we get to light the Advent candles this week. Let me have my hand here. So we're starting Advent this week here. It's a um, uh, celebration of the arrival of Christ and our expectation of his second coming. Um, so let me read from the uh, prophet Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. In the presence of God, we light this first candle, signifying Emmanuel, God with us. We are in awe. Overwhelmed by God, we are speechless. Graced by God, we are thankful. You are all welcome here. God is welcome here. Come and be here. Holy God, come among us and be you. Please join me in a word of prayer. We are not always welcoming, O oh God, and we do not always feel welcome. We have not celebrated one another as the good gifts we are. We have not cried together in the seasons when we have needed a good cry. We have not visited one another often enough to gasp in joy or sigh in pain. Forgive us, O oh God. Teach us again to create home for friends and strangers, loved ones and enemies. Teach us to follow your example. Teach us to live as you lived and to love as you love. We are in awe of you, in your place, in your time, in your presence. Amen. My name is James. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's wonderful to be with you guys this morning. If you're joining us online, thank you so much for being here, especially here for the first time. So good to meet you. Uh, those who've been with flow, oh, my voice is, is coming back. I'm, uh, I'm excited. I am so loaded, filled with so many different kinds of drugs, um, <laughs> trying to clear this stuff out, and it's, it's slowly working, and I'm hoping it'll, we'll, we'll see. I've been on vocal rest for almost a month now, um, so outside of preaching, and I'm, I'm hoping it'll, it'll make through, so we'll see how it goes. It is Christmas season. It's amazing. Uh, I, it is such a, a beautiful thing. Living, growing up our last 25 years overseas, we didn't, uh, other places don't move towards the season in the ways, in some ways that's good, in other ways it's, it's, it's sad. There are certain things where we've over-commercialized it, but there are other ways in which we really make it a season of pointing to Jesus, and that's just such a cool, beautiful thing we do here. And uh, even Advent, looking at the coming of Christ, is such an incredible way to celebrate as this morning, we're going to talk about a Christmas story, but maybe a little bit different than we're used to. And we're going to talk about the Christmas story through Ephesians chapter 3, where we're at right now in our series called Living and Loving Like Jesus in the Midst of a Post-Christian World. And we're going to talk about this guy named Paul. You've probably heard about him. Um, and, and, and this Paul was, during the time of Jesus, one of the most staunch Jewish leaders at the time. And he was one of the most educated, and as Christ died, he was also one of the most violently opposed to the work of Christ. He hated those who would water down Judaism. He hated those who were Christians. And after Jesus died, he made it his job to go and find Christians and kill them and, and try to wipe them out. But on the way, as, as he was actually heading down to kill yet more Christians, Jesus met him along the road. And, and Jesus blinded him, took away his sight, and then he called him and made him his own. And from that day forward, Paul's life was forever changed. And then God does the craziest thing at that time. 
He takes this powerful Jewish leader who hates those who are not Jews, and he calls him to actually reach the Gentiles, those people who were not Jews. Those he hated the very most, the most polar opposites of people. I mean, it'd be like God calling a, a neo-Nazi skinhead leader and then calling them to go and his primary ministry is reaching out to the Black Lives Matter organization, right? I mean, it's, it's the polar opposites in regards to this, of people, of values and everything. And he calls him to go minister specifically to the Gentiles. And his heart is transformed. He begins to reach out to Gentiles with all he has. And not only Gentiles, he reaches out to his fellow Jewish brothers as well. Everywhere he goes, he starts in the synagogues, and then inevitably they refuse him because he speaks of the Gentiles. And so then he goes into the public square and reaches them as well. And so Paul, this Jewish leader, devotes the rest of his life to reaching people who are not Jews, reaching the outsiders for Jesus, pursuing those that he once thought were profane, Jews view Gentiles as filthy, as, as sexual deviants, as, as, as uh, idolaters. And yet Paul devotes his life to reaching those that he couldn't even stand to be in a room with just, just, just months and years before. People he thought were beyond redemption, he devotes his life to reaching. And never for an instant does Paul look at creating a separate church of Jews and Gentiles in this place. The only reason why Paul is actually in prison is because he's so convinced that the Jews and the Gentiles must become one people in following Christ. And he spends the rest of his life bringing together the outsiders and the insiders together, calling them to be one body in Christ and the complete opposites who hate each other, calling them together. That's why he's in prison. That's why he's killed. You know, at one point, the, uh, the Jewish church in Jerusalem was facing a famine. You can read about it in Acts. And Paul travels all throughout what's modern-day Greece and modern-day Turkey, taking up a collection from the Gentile churches to go give money to the church in Jerusalem filled with Jews. And you have to realize, these groups hated each other. The Jews hated the Gentiles, and yet Paul was telling the Gentiles, we must give to our Jewish brothers. He takes up this huge collection. He spends a ton of time doing it. It becomes a central task as he travels through on one of these missionary journeys, is collecting money from the Gentiles to give to the Jewish church in Jerusalem. He's convinced of it by that, that much. In fact, many scholars believe the book of Romans, the theological treatise, one of the primary reasons it was even written is because the last chapter speaks about this offering being taken up. And in ancient times, usually you put the most important thing right at the end. We skip over that, but it was central to even the letter of Romans being written was we must, as the Gentile church, support our Jewish brothers and become one with them. Paul devoted himself to this calling to become one body. And so he writes this letter of Ephesians. He's sitting, in a, he's sitting in a Roman prison. And why is he in prison? Because he took that collection of money he got from the Gentiles and he took it back to Jerusalem. That's why. And when he got to Jerusalem, he wanted to give the money for the Gentiles to the Jews. And he went and, and when he arrived in Jerusalem, he, he went to the temple and he wanted them to know that he was, the Gentiles were sacrificially giving to them. And as a result, it cost him his life because when he gets back to the temple, and people see him, it causes a, a giant uproar, and all these Jewish people get so angry that he's there, and, and he speaks up to defend himself. And he, as soon as he mentions the Gentiles, they go into a furor. You can read about it in the book of Acts. And they arrest him, and, and 40 Jewish people, just like Paul, devote themselves. They say, we will not touch food again until Paul is dead. That is how much they hated the Gentiles. And so Paul is arrested, He's taken away and he spends the next years in prison and traveling in different places, trying to go back eventually to, to, be see, to see Caesar. And in that process, he goes on death row, he's in prison, and that's where he writes this very letter 
because of his conviction, the Jews and the Gentiles must be one body. Why? Because he's absolutely convinced that the gospel is not good news if it's two different bodies. That is not the good news of the gospel. It's only good news, as Jesus says, when they come together as one. If Paul would have been okay with two different bodies, two different churches, a Jewish church and a Gentile church, you know, the, the upright, doctrinally pure church and, 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 and those who were idolaters coming out of sexual morality and all the brokenness, if he would have been okay with them just culturally separating based upon those divisions, he wouldn't have had to die. He would, be, he would have been alive to live. He wouldn't have to write letters. He could have gone in person. But because he was convinced that the church should not exist being separate from one another, he paid the ultimate price with his life for it. That they had to be one body together glorifying Christ. It cost him his life. And that, he says, is the greatest gift of his life. is to take this message to the world that the two must become one in Christ. That everyone can experience life in Christ. And not just experience life in Christ. That wasn't enough. He wasn't okay with them being separate. But together, as one body, experiencing life in Christ. That's Paul's ministry. That's his call. The very call of Christ, that there would no longer be outsiders and insiders, but they would, be one, they would be one body. That all would come together as one. Jews and Gentiles. Those who hate each other. Those who literally called each other dogs and perverts. And that was before Twitter existed. They said it to their faces, right? This wasn't just online anonymously. They said it right to their faces. They couldn't even share a meal together. And he said they must become one in obedience to Christ. And yet Paul knew, and, and as we're going to see today, that unless the insiders and the outsiders become one body in Christ, there is no true gospel being presented. And so as we look at this passage today, it's my hope that we'll be able to listen to the words of Christ through Paul, and that we'll be filled with an increased longing to accept the gift of grace that Paul did, and devote our lives to seeing those who are outsiders become insiders, part of the same body as us. Those from other nationalities and colors, those from other socioeconomic classes, those with different worldviews and politics, those with different views on, on gender or sexuality, or maybe those we see as undeserving, or those we see, maybe we just have apathy towards, we're indifferent towards, or even those we find repulsive and we can't even be in the same room as, to recognize that the greatest joy of Christ is for outsiders to become one with insiders. And is that the longing of our hearts? If not, we're not complete. We, we, we should not be content as long as there are outsiders outside the walls of these church who do not have, who are not one with us, who do not know Jesus. Those who look, act, and believe the exact opposite of us. They must, we must have the heart that they become one and join us. That is the heart of Jesus. This is why Christ came. And if that's not your understanding, it's because your understanding of the gospel is too small. It's incomplete. If it's just about you and your faith and, and your getting to heaven, you do not understand Jesus and you do not understand the gospel. This is why Christ came. This is why we celebrate Christmas. Because he came for all, that all would be one in him. Amen? All right, so let's jump into our passage this morning. We're in Ephesians chapter 3. And uh, we're going to go, starting from verse 1, and we're, we begin here. It's, it's, it's an incredible word this morning. Well, not my word, the word of God. Um, for this reason, he begins in verse 1. And he says, for this reason, he starts chapter 1. That means he's going back to chapter 2. And, and that would be a few weeks ago, Steve was teaching on this passage where he said that, that, that Jesus broke down the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. So for this reason, that Jesus came to break down the dividing wall to make the two one. For this reason, he says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles... 
Now again, he's going to go on this 12-verse rabbit trail right here. He's just talking about the Gentiles. He's starting to pray for them. And then all of a sudden, he gets caught up in the glory of what it means that he's called to them, the Gentiles. And so he's saying that this is my calling. is to you Gentiles. And now again, now he's going to go on this 12-verse kind of rabbit trail. And I love that Paul does this. He does it again in chapter 5. does all over the place because it means as, as preachers, we're allowed to go on rabbit trails because he set the tone. But... Um, Verse 2, he says, surely, now he gets caught up, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given me to you. That this mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly in reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Notice the repetition here. Which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promises in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden from God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold, the multifaceted wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus the Lord. So that's a lot of words. I want to I break it down because this is incredible what he says here. But what was the repeated word you would have heard there four times there? It was the word mystery. So we'll be talking about that this morning title today is the mystery revealed jesus came for all so verse one let's start there he says for this reason i paul a prisoner of christ jesus for the sake of you gentiles now again that's referring back to chapter two where the two become one and he's telling them that jesus came to broke that dividing wall of hostility and he's saying this that for this reason it's it's because that christ came to break that wall that is the gospel of which he is a prisoner it is because he's preaching that very message that the two must become one that he now no longer has the freedom to move about that he is a prisoner it's the only reason he's in chains the only reason he is killed is because he's proclaiming that they have an equal inheritance between jews and gentiles and that the two must become one body that's why he's on death row and that's why he has to write letters let me get to verse 2. He says this. Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. So again, this mystery. We spoke about it a number of weeks ago when that mystery cults were a huge part of Ephesian religious practices at that point. For those who didn't know Jesus, mystery cults were central to the religious practice for many, and everything was about acquiring more knowledge and, and learning the secret mysteries. And the more mysteries you understood, the more power you would get over all the, the divine beings, and, and you'd get power in the spiritual world. And everyone wanted this power, and so they desired to know the answers, the secrets to the mysteries. And these mystery cults were usually wrapped up with great violence, sexual, debauch sexual debauchery, and, and idolatry, and really creepy, scary stuff that they would do in these things, in the inner sanctums of, of learning about these mysteries. So the people wanted mysteries. So Paul is using that language to, to draw people in. And so he's leaning, as the people are reading this, and they're like, I have received the, the, the revelation of the mysteries. People are kind of like in the palm of his hands, like, tell us, Paul. They're reading this letter out as this letter is being read to them. Like, what are these mysteries? And he says, I have this revelation. They're like, what, Paul, what is the mystery? And you can imagine them just kind of on the edge of their seats leaning into, what is it? Please tell us, we want to know. Kind of like you're watching like the final episode of, the, of, of Lost back in the day, and you're wondering, what is the mystery? Who's the smoke monster? What's going on, right? 
So now the Greek word here, just to understand, for, for mystery, isn't mean like mysterious. It actually just means something that's hidden that is later revealed. So then we get into verse 4. And he says this. In reading this, notice how he writes this. In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. So he's almost leading them on here. He's building it up. He's saying, you're about to see my insight into this incredible mystery. It's been hidden from all previous generations until right now. And Paul has them right where he wants them. He's just, they're holding it. So what is it, Paul? And he explains this mystery has not previously been understood. That there was, that full revelation has not yet come. It was there, it was under, it was there in the Old Testament, but they didn't have the revelation. They didn't understand it. It was right in front of them, but they couldn't see it. And then finally, after three chapters of kind of teasing this out and leading them on, here it comes. He's about ready to answer it. He's about ready to tell what is the mystery. And are you ready for it? It's better than than the answer to the Bible code or 666 or the location of the Holy Grail or any of those other things, right? This is the great mystery finally revealed right here in chapter 3, verse 6. And he says it this way. The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promises in Christ Jesus. Did you get it? You see the great mystery? The great mystery hidden from ages past, hidden from angels, now revealed in Christ. And it's, what is it? It's the greatness. It's three things specifically. One, the Gentiles are equal heirs with the Jews. Number two, they are members of the same body in Christ. And number three, they share in the same promises with the Jews in Christ. Those are the three great revelations of this great mystery. The message translates it this way in more simple understand terms. He says, and Peterson says, the mystery is that people who have never heard of God, that's the Gentiles, and those who have heard of him all their lives, the Jews, what I've been calling outsiders and insiders, stand on the same ground before God. They get the same offer, the same help, the same promises in Christ Jesus. So that's the great mystery. Those who are Jews, the insiders of history, And those who are outsiders, the rest of everyone else, those who know about God and those who have never known about him, because of Christ, they are all the same in Christ. They get the same offer, the same promises. Jesus came for all, Jew and Gentile alike, and they all get the same promises, the same inheritance. They're the same body in Christ. In fact, in verse 9, he's going to say, this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. He describes this exact same language used in Colossians. And he says, this mystery is only now revealed. It was, it was there in the Old Testament. You read the Old Testament. It's there all over the place. God's heart for the Gentiles is screaming through the pages of the Old Testament. However, the Jews refused to see it. Because they could never see Gentiles as equal to themselves receiving the same inheritance. They always saw them as second-class citizens. It would never be, they could believe and they could convert, but they could never become real Jews. They would never be fully adopted. They would never receive an equal inheritance and definitely not part of the same body. And so that's the mystery. Does that feel a little anticlimactic to anyone? Right, like you really, you tease this whole thing out and that's it? Like we already know that stuff. It can feel kind of like a letdown. You spend three chapters building up this great mystery, and then it's like, oh, wait, that's just, that's, that's just, isn't that just the gospel? Let me talk about a little bit of a letdown. I mean, 
It could be kind of like investing 100 hours into watching Lost for six, seven seasons, whatever it is, watching all 121 episodes, and, and finally you expect some great reveal, and you're in that final episode, right, where it's, is there a picture of it up there? Well, there's like this weird church scene or something like that, right? And you're like, wait a second, you're just saying they were dead all along? Sorry to spoil it if you haven't watched it yet, but they were dead all along, right? And you're like, what about the smoke monster? What, what about the cork? Like, someone answers some of these mysteries, and none of them, they just like, just float away, and you're like, that was the dumbest ending to anything I've ever seen. Give me my 120 hours of my life back, right? This is quite a letdown of a big mystery that's kind of like, what's going on? Is that what's happening here? Let's go to verse 6 again. He says this, This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promises of Christ Jesus. And here we find the heart of Christmas, of why Jesus came that all his children should be reconciled to him. Not just the ones who, who had special privileges, not just the ones who, who came from the right families, not just those with Judeo-Christian values or those with traditional views on gender or, or sexuality or marriage, but Jesus wants all, all of them, every single one of them. And I love what Paul does here. In this passage, he's going to use three different, well, two different Greek words, and he makes up a new one. You're going to see to be able to define what he's saying here. He literally invents a new word because there's no word in the language that says what he's trying to say. And so again, first he's going to say, we looked at this before, he says, the gospel, because of the gospel, now Gentiles and Jews have our heirs together. The great scholar Jerome, the one who translated the Latin Vulgate back in the 300s, in his commentary on Ephesians, I was reading, he says this, it's not that some possession is divided among us, but that God himself in his fullness is our inheritance and possession. So Jesus is saying that an equal inheritance would like split up the stuff of Jesus, but it's saying that we all have Jesus. We have the same inheritance. We all get Jesus. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter where you're from, we have equal access and equal inheritance in Christ. And then Paul's going to speak about, about what this means they get this new body. And here's where he literally invents a new word. There was no word that fully described what he's trying to say, saying the two become one, that whole chapter of chapter two. And so what Paul does, he creates a new word. He takes the word for body, he takes the word together, and he makes this new word called, uh, in Greek, it's susoma, or susomos. Say it with me, say susomos. Susomos. What it means, it means body and together. Put together to mean one body out of two. And Paul creates this word intentionally to emphasize the fact that, that two bodies become one. And they become together bodies. That the, the body of Christ becomes susamos. It, it, the Jews and the Gentiles, those who can't stand each other, those at polar opposites, come together as one as susamos. And this is a concept that would blow the mind of anyone at that time. Again, it'd be like, as I said before, a, a skinhead and a, and a Black Lives Matter leader coming together and saying, we're going to become one. So they have the same inheritance in Jesus. They have the same body. And 30 says now they have the exact same promises. You see, for all of history, Jews knew that Gentiles could believe and convert to Judaism. But they never, ever, ever would be as good as Jews. Everyone, even all of the disciples, struggled with this. You know, last week we talked about the Jerusalem Council. At the Jerusalem Council, there wasn't a single disciple who actually, not a single disciple of Jesus, actually believed that Gentiles could become equal with Jews. Not a single one in regards to their faith. Not a single one of them believed it. They knew they could convert, but they would never be the same at, by the time of the Jerusalem Council. In fact, in the letter of Galatians, there's this incredible story where Paul is retelling the story of Peter. Peter, remember, the, the founder, or the, the leader of the Christian church, one of Jesus' inner circle, 
Peter, it takes him 15 years after Jesus dies, 15 years of following the Holy Spirit in ministry before he believes Gentiles can actually even be saved, really. And it takes this radical miracle of this vision from God with a sheet coming down, everything, to even show him that. But even then, he still doesn't truly believe it. Because you see the story in Galatia where Paul says that, that Peter came up to visit the work that Paul was doing, working amongst Gentiles. And when he comes there, everything's going well. And Peter has a meal with the Gentiles, and he's eating together, and it seems that everything's going great. Peter's a changed man until some Jews from Jerusalem come up. And they come to the place and visit. And what does Peter do? Immediately, he walks away from the Jews and won't sit with them or eat with them. Why? He's embarrassed. Doesn't want to be seen with the Jews. And what you realize is his heart hasn't actually changed. He's walking in obedience to God, but he still carries all this prejudice and hatred in his heart towards them. He is disgusted by the Gentiles. And Paul says that he publicly rebukes Peter to his face in front of everyone and says, how dare you look down upon these people? This is Peter. On this rock, I'll build my church, is what Jesus said about him. And almost 20 years after Jesus' death, he still does not see the value in Gentiles. Almost 20 years. I don't know if we get how prejudiced and racist the disciples were against Gentiles. How even Peter, who God directly spoke to through a miraculous vision and then affirmed it, still cannot accept the Gentiles as valuable. He was disgusted to be with them in the book of Acts. But he obeyed, and we want to believe that he obeyed with a great heart, but we can see he didn't. We want to believe that his heart was radically transformed at that time, but it wasn't. He did not see them as equal. He saw them as second class, maybe third class, maybe tenth class. They were not susumos by any stretch of the imagination to him. They were not one body. The Gentiles to Peter were a charity case. He could slum it with the Gentiles. He could plug his nose and maybe hold his breath and go love them for a little while. And then go home and take a shower and burn the clothes he was wearing to get the stink off of him. Right? That's kind of the view they had of working with Gentiles. And that's Peter, one of the closest disciples to Jesus. Paul says this is why Christ came. Because that's not the heart of Jesus. That was brokenness of humanity. They were not one body. So this is why Christ came. It's why we celebrate Christmas. Because from the very beginning, it was God's longing that all of his children, all of them, had not just equal access to him, but share in his inheritance and his promises, and that we all become one body. Do we get how amazing that is? You know what's crazy about this for us is that many Christians today would read that and go, oh, those foolish Jews. So racist, so prejudiced. I mean, yeah, I mean, praise God, we're so much better today. Right? I mean, it's so wonderful that we have more enlightenment today as, as believers today. And I don't know why it was such a big deal for them, but I'm grateful that today that we have so much greater revelation and enlightenment. It's no great mystery for us today. We've been reading this for years. But I would ask, are you sure? Do we really get it? Because I don't think I do in the way that Paul is talking about here, of what susamos means. I mean, do you realize that most of us here are Gentiles? The vast majority of us are. Do you realize that Peter would have been disgusted to be in this room? Half of the way through the book of Acts, Peter would have been disgusted by us. Even 15 to 20 years after Jesus died, if our church right here, if we were in 45 AD, 15 years after, after, after Jesus died, Peter would have been feeling like walking into this room right now would be like coming into a leper colony. Peter, the apostle of Jesus, would have felt walking into this room with us would be like entering into a leper colony. 
He'd be shaking our hands and scared and thinking, I have to go wash that. I have to go wash that. And every single person he would find revolting and reviling in here. That's Peter, 15 years after Jesus died. He'd be grossed out by us and try to leave as quickly as possible. Down to his credit, it took him a few more years, but Peter has a radical transformation in Revelation. And he ends up giving his life as the leader of the church in Rome, the same way that Paul did, fighting for Susamos between the Jews and the Gentiles. But it took him a little few more years after this. You see, sometimes as Western evangelical Christians, we can take for, grant, for granted our, our place of privilege. We can forget that we were outsiders, that we are not the insiders, that we were looked down upon, we were spat upon. We were reviled. We were seen as unclean. We were seen as immoral. We were seen as debaucheries. We were seen as repulsive. We were seen as degenerate. We were already judged as less than before a conversation was even had with us. That is our position. And yet Jesus came and died for us. He said he wanted us to be with him so that we could become one with him and, and one with all his people. That we could experience susamos with the body of Christ. Sharing in all of his promises and all of his fellowship and all of his inheritance. Not as second-class citizens, not relegated to the children's table at Thanksgiving. I don't know if anyone got stuck at that place and your Thanksgiving meal, right, where you're away from there. We often do pastor gatherings and different things, and you can always see like the, the kind of the, 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 not always, but some of the meetings we go to, you see kind of like the bigwig pastors, the megachurch pastors, whatever, they're kind of their big thing, and there's the table, and it's like a smaller pastors are off on the side table, and people are kind of looking over, like, look at the guys with all the influence over there. And it's kind of funny, seeing the, the dynamic there, right? We have these different dynamics in places where you go of, of people where uh, we feel like first class, second class, other stuff. And, and Jesus saying, no, we are one body. One body together. Adopted fully into the family. Equal inheritance as Jesus himself. Jesus wanted so badly for us to be in his family. And for that, we owe him a life of a thank offering to him. But as we read these words of Paul, we must not forget that it's no less true today. This heart of Jesus is the very heart of the gospel the center of why Jesus came, that all could come to experience life in him and become one body, to be susamos with one another. The gospel isn't about me getting to heaven. It's about God reconciling his children to be one body here and now just as much as then and there. That's what Christ is calling us to. The gospel isn't about me and mine. It's about us and ours together coming as one body. So the massive question is, do we carry this heart today? Is this the beat of our heart? Or are we more like Peter for the first half of his ministry? Thinking, ah, I can do that someday. And today, insiders and outsiders, it's, it's not necessarily as clear as it was. It's not a Jew-Gentile breakdown in the world today. That doesn't tend to be our biggest issue. Though we, we should definitely be pursuing Jewish people. Right? My, my grandfather was Jewish, and, and I, I tried, my great-grandfather so was Jewish, and I tried even in high school to like get a free trip to Israel out of it, because if you have a, you're a Jew, you get a free trip to Israel, and I was one generation removed, and so I was really bummed. I tried getting a free trip, so I apparently don't count as being Jewish, but we need to, we, we must be pursuing them, but it's so much more than Jewish-Gentile breakdowns. The question, how do we treat, or who do we treat as outsiders? Who do we treat as Gentiles today? Who do we have apathy towards? Who do we not understand the culture of? And therefore, we maybe just feel too different to be able to understand, and, and so we just leave them at a distance. It could be immigrant neighbors. If you live in this area, there's, I mean, almost everyone moving in is, is, is not white, it seems, in this area. Every neighbor we've had move into our neighborhood in the last year, I can't think of a single white family that's moved in. Every single, we're talking 20, 30 families coming in. Every single one is not white. I don't know 
with those kind of fans, me think I don't know what I would cook. I don't know how I'd hang out with them. I, I don't even know we speak the langu- same language. I don't know it'd be awkward. But then just go reread the book of Acts. That's the issues they were dealing with between Jews and Gentiles. They had nothing in, nothing in common. He's saying we must go to the Gentiles. Or maybe it's not that. Maybe it's people we may look down upon. Who, who do we feel maybe is unworthy of our time or our energy? Who do we feel we have to bite our tongue when we're around because they make us angry? Who do we just not have it in us to love? Maybe their political opinions are different than our own, and they just get us tied up in knots, or maybe their views on on gender or sexuality are radically different than our own. Whatever it is, these are our Gentiles, those who, who we don't actually want to spend time with, those who do not yet know Jesus, those who eat different than us, vote different than us, practice different, dress different, talk different, maybe with different accents, or those who have different views on, on any issue. Those are the Gentiles to us. Those who are currently outsiders. And we must get this heart of Jesus, because this is why he came, and it's why we celebrate Christmas. And it means, it's why we, we this is what it means to follow Jesus. It's not to hang out with and pursue those who are just like us, but he's pursuing us and calling us to reconcile a lost world back into himself. And this is the great mystery revealed. And I feel that most Christians today, sometimes we're we're in the same kind of darkness that Peter was in. We don't get it of how much God's heart is for this. We think, yes, his heart's for me, but just as much as me, it's for us. It's for the lost to come to know. It's for the outsiders to become insiders. 2,000 years of enlightenment later, I don't feel we're any more enlightened than Peter was. We think we have knowledge, but it seems we actually have very little. Ralph, Wal- Ralph, Ralph Waldo Emerson had a great quote. He says, okay, only so much do I know as I have lived. Instantly, we know those whose words are loaded with life and those who's not. Do, do we live out that reality? If we judged our knowledge was based on what we actually lived out, how much would we say we actually know about God's heart for the outsider based upon what we actually live out? Those who do, those are the words that have life. Is our life postured in such a way that our central longing of our heart, of Christ, we have recognized the central longing of Christ is to make the outsiders insiders, to become one body with those we can't relate to, to those that we're disgusted by, or, or those who make us angry by, by, by being so different than us, or, or sin differently than us. Do we seek after this double union, as John Stock calls it, that, that the outsiders would be united with Christ? Yes, but also united with us. Do we know that we are not complete? Without the Gentile world, without, in this case, the outsiders, those who don't know Jesus, we are not complete as a body when there are those who do not know him. In the next verse, Paul's going to share how he does it in verse 7. He says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of this power. So as Paul says, it is the gospel of reaching the outsiders that I have become a servant of. And it's God's gift of grace that empowers me to carry it out. And I love that. We have to talk about God's saving grace, right? We speak about amazing grace that saved us, and that's awesome. But here Paul emphasized that it's not just God's grace that saves us. It's God's empowering grace that empowers us to actually live this out. We don't do it on our own. One of my favorite quotes by Dallas Willard. That's hard to say. I got hundreds of them. But um, another one of my favorites. He says, we often, think that sin- we often think that it's sinners that need grace so much because we've shrink-wrapped grace into the forgiveness of sin. We, we shriek, right? We, we've limited grace to just be the forgiveness of sin. But he says, but grace is way more than that. It is the power of life. And the reality is that saints burn more grace than sinners ever could. Saints burn through grace like a 747 burns jet fuel. I love that. 
Saints burn grace like a 747 burns jet fuel. We are leaning into it. We're relying upon it. And we need to keep burning up that grace of God as he empowers us, not by living in sin, but as he empowers us to actually be the people he's called to be. To love those who we feel it's impossible to love. To care for those. To reorder our lives. To love and to sacrificially reach those who are outsiders and bring them into the family of God. Paul continues in verse 8. He says, Although I am less than the least of the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles. See, the grace empowers him to preach to the Gentiles. He says, now here he says, I'm less than the least of all people. And I love this. He says, I am the least deserving person. And again, he makes a new Greek word. He loves doing that. And he actually takes it. He says, basically, he makes it grammatically impossible. And like English would be like saying, I am the leastest of the least. He emphasizes it for extra. In fact, it, it rhymes with his name. So what he's actually saying in the Greek is, I am small Paul kind of thing. Like he's saying, I am the least, the leastest of the leastest. I am the lowest of the lowest, he says. And he says, but says that God's grace is poured out on him and he gets to preach the outsiders, the, the, the boundless, the, the, the unsearchable, the, the, the inexplicable, the incomprehensible riches of Christ. Or, or maybe the best translation there is by the great Vizzini from, from, um, from uh, uh, The Princess Bride, the inconceivable riches of Christ. Though that word probably doesn't mean what I think it means. <laughs> but uh, Paul says, I am the least of the least. Yet I've been given the richest possible calling to bring outsiders inside for the least of these to see how beautiful Jesus is. You see, Paul, because he understood how little, how little he was, how undeserving of God's grace he was, he knew he was the least of the least. Therefore, he could reach the least of these. Do you get that connection? Jesus says in Matthew 25, 40, he says, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. What an incredible privilege it was last night, you know, to serve over 80 families that came to this place. Extremely low-income people from all different backgrounds. This place was filled with hundreds of people. We had like 100 volunteers serving in so many ways. It was just the kingdom of God on display of every nation and nationality and tongue and tribe. It was so beautiful to see this place. And I was just holding back tears over and over again. It's just like, oh, Jesus, this is amazing. People from all every possible socioeconomic background. It was so beautiful to see. It was real just to pour out and love and love and love and love on people and give them an incredible experience. What a pleasure it was and what delight it gave to the Lord. As we postured as a community to care for those that are hurting in our community. One of the things I loved about when I was in South Africa working with gangsters and prostitutes and, or those caught in gangsters and prostitution is that when they would come to Christ, they had no problem going to the most broken. You know who they would go to first? The most broken of the broken of the broken. Why? Because a gangster had been a murderer's life and a drug addict and a drug dealer. When he came to Christ, what he knew is he was undeserving. And so what he would do, he would go to the most broken people around him and they would share, they would spread it that way because the people who know that they're the least will reach out to the least of these. It's pride that usually prevents us from reaching the outsider that wants to be with people that we think are our own stratus, or our own socioeconomic area or something else along those lines. But do we see ourselves as the least deserving, like Paul? We recognize what Christ has done for us, or is pride preventing us from doing so. So then Paul's going to take it one step further in the next verse. This is our last verse. He says, his intent was that now, check this out, this is insane, through the church, and that's the gathered body, not just individuals, the gathered body, the manifold or the multifaceted wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Jesus Christ our Lord. 
So Paul now reaches the heights of his wonder at God's goodness. He says that now we, the church, the gathered body of Christ, specifically referring again to the corporate gathering of us together, gathering together as a body of all these outsiders and insiders mixed together. He says, when we are composed of outsiders and insiders together as one body, he says, through us, the manifold wisdom of God is made known to who? The Gentiles? No, to the rulers and authorities of the heavenly realms out there in the cosmos. What he's been talking about in chapter one. I mean, what what is he talking about here? Through us broken, through us uh, divided vessels who in the natural world we can't even talk to each other who have a different political view or a different theological view. He says, through us, the heavenly realms, the angels and the demons will see the glory of God through us gathered together as a body. I mean, that's just insane. And the word manifold is, a, is a, not a good word there in most translations. It's insufficient because the Greek word literally means, it means like many colored wisdom. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a poetic adjective that's used to describe the coat of many colors of Joseph back in the Old Testament. So the whole point of that picture is like uh, the multifacets of a diamond saying that God's wisdom is filled with a display of colors and diversity and explosion of things that are not alike. And that is God's wisdom. It is something that brings all the colors of the spectrum together where the impossible becomes possible, where humans who hate one another and cannot walk together, where they come together in Christ and become susamos, become one body and begin to love each other, where people who call each other dogs and call each other mean things or, or spend all their energy trying to create dumb tweets on, on Twitter or dumb memes on Twitter and stuff that hurt people and say mean things to others, where even these kinds of people come together as one body. He's saying this, when this happens in the body of Christ, as we come together, God is glorified in the heavenly realms as the two become one and God's multicolored wisdom is put on display. And it's multiracial. It's diverse. And he celebrates every picture you see of the kingdom is all the nations, the nations, the peoples all gathered together. That's the picture. As we get the kingdom more and more, we must become more and more diverse and look more and more like that. And the kicker, what happens when God does this? He says it right here. God's glory and wisdom is revealed to the authorities in the heavenly realms. You know, sometimes we forget. We are, it's not just us and God around. The Bible's very, very clear. There is a host of rulers and authorities out there that are actively engaged as well. He's already spoken about them. But we have an audience. And it's kind of a weird thing that we don't talk much about as Christians because we don't understand it, but he's crystal clear here. There is an audience watching us. who don't. They know the ultimate outcome that's written, but they don't know how it happens. And we are on display. And God's like saying, check this out. Watch this to the angels and even to the demons. He's saying, watch as my glory is made visible through Northview. Watch as it's made visible through my body here. Watch as these people come together and I make the two, one, susamos, watch my glory displayed. He shows us this cosmic view of what he's doing. It's so amazing. And he shows us that he's, that he's saying to the, the angels that everything's looking terrible. And he said, God says to the angels, watch this as I shower my grace down upon them. Watch them come together. Watch what happens. But he's turning away. No, watch what happens, he says to the angels, and you will see. Look at this guy named Saul. Watch him killing the Christians. Now, look what happens when my grace pours out upon him. His heart's going to move towards them, and he becomes susamos with the Christians he's trying to kill. And the angel's like blown away. I think, I think it's one of those like TikTok videos of like kids like overreact to like a bottle being flipped. They all like jump and fall down backwards, right? Like this is, this, the angels are just blown away as they see God's manifold wisdom being displayed through the church. Where he says, look at this little boy named Jimmy who's sexually abused and broken and hurting and addictions and all this other stuff. Watch him as James grows up and becomes a missionary and 
experience the grace of God. And he becomes a pastor here at Northview. Watch what I do with grace in this little boy's life, taking this broken, abused kid, and look what I'll do with him. Watch what I do with anyone. Watch what I do with Melissa. Watch what I do with, with Jared. Watch what I do with Tim. Watch what I do in these guys' lives as they experience my grace. And watch, angels, as my glory is poured out upon them. Look at those two trolls yelling at each other who can't stand each other. Watch what happens if I make them one. We as a church are the place where Jesus displays his beauty. We get to do that. That's our job. We get to do that. And so that's our calling. And today there's some people that maybe they feel that it's awkward to be able to take this, this gift out. But what you see in, G, in Paul, he strives it as the unsearchable, the inconceivable riches of Christ that we get to share with the lost world, with the people outside. This is the great mystery revealed. The two become one. Susamos. This is what Christmas is all about. This is the Christmas story. That Christ wants all of us to be one. Not just those in here, but those outside. And it's why Paul does the missionary journeys. It's why he goes and collects that offering amongst the Gentiles. And it's why we celebrate Christmas. Why we celebrate Advent, the coming of Christ. For the two to become one. So we're going to move towards communion now. And we're going we're to celebrate just a little bit differently this morning. Because I want you to pray before we do. But when Jesus was ready to give his life for us, he gathered all of his disciples together for a final meal. And in their last hours together, over and over again, he admonishes his disciples that they're called to sacrificially love others the way that he's loved them. He says that his impending death is an example of what love is supposed to look like. And he tells them he's going to lay his life down for them and that they are to go and do likewise, that they are to go and reach the least and the lost to make the outsiders insiders. That's what he tells them at that last meal. And then he, he picks up the bread. And he tells them as he does so that, that this is my body that is broken for you. He says, take it and eat it, but do not forget what I endure for your sake, he tells them. Now what's fascinating is Jesus doesn't tell them to remember his royal entry. He doesn't tell them to remember the miracles. He doesn't tell them to remember the amount of transfiguration of his glorification. He has them specifically remember his sacrificial death says, this is what I want you to focus on, the sacrificial way in which I'm loving you, because that is the example I want you to follow, because that is the power that allows outsiders to become insiders. It's sacrificial love. That's what makes two one, as we follow his sacrificial way of living and do that for others. And so he picks up the bread, and he tells him to break it. And so what I want us to do, just before we take it, I just want us to pray and listen to the Lord for a minute. Ah, Jesus. Jesus, you came from heaven to earth, as the song says, to show us the way. The Son of God became a servant. God became the least of men to reach the least of us. You made the outsiders, that, that's us, to be insiders, that we could have life in you. Jesus, help us to reorient our hearts. Break our hearts with the things that break yours, Jesus. And so right now, Lord, I pray before we even take this bread, may you highlight to us where we need to move towards outsiders whom you deeply love. Maybe it's apologizing to an enemy on social media. Maybe it's reconciling with a family member we said something hurtful to on Thanksgiving. Maybe it's a, uh, it's a neighbor with, from, from a different background than us that we've never spent time with, we've just ignored, Lord, that we need to reach out to. But maybe it's bringing food to, to a beggar, someone that we have despised in some way or looked down upon. 
But before we take this bread, Jesus, I just say we want to remember your sacrifice by first realigning our lives for the reason for your sacrifice, that all could become one. Just listen to the Holy Spirit just for a few seconds. Just ask him where you might need realignment. Thank you, Jesus. And so, Father, we, we, we take this bread as a symbol of your broken body that was broken for us, in remembrance of you and your sacrificial love. And then Jesus took the cup of wine. He said, this is my blood that was shed for you. He says, when you gathered, you know, do this and remember to me. Remember that my blood was poured out for you so that you can experience life because I've laid down mine. Let's take the cup. Amen. Jesus. Oh, Father. Thank you that your love for us is more than we could ever comprehend. And as we head into this Christmas season of Advent, of celebrating your coming. Lord, may it not just be about us, but Lord, may you, your kingdom, which means open our eyes up to those who are outsiders. Create sensitivity in our hearts to those who rub us the wrong way, towards those we have anger towards, or those that we don't want to be around. Show us what it means to sacrificially love in this season. That we would experience susamos, Lord, with those who do not yet know you. Thank you, Jesus.